The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-25. through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Christian, uh, for reading our passage today. My name is Learic Fesco. If we've not had the chance to meet, I'm the director of discipleship here, and it's my privilege to walk with you through this passage of Scripture today. It was just last year, uh, one of my sons was struggling with an essay at school. He was having uh, a difficult time understanding what exactly the teacher was asking of him. He uh, submitted his essay, and uh, the teacher gave it back to him, asking more of him, basically telling him to do it over. This, as you might imagine, had him greatly frustrated. Well, fortunately for my son, he has a father who had a career in publishing before he went to work for the church. I made books for a living. Uh, If there's one thing I know, it's how to assemble content and make it readable. So I committed to him that I would sit down with him and work through his essay together. We're going to write a masterpiece, I told him. We're going to give your teacher more than expected. But most importantly, you're going to learn how to get a grasp on what you need to know to write a compelling essay. So that's what we did. We worked through it. He wrote. He learned. And once we were finished, we had a tremendous essay, if I do say so myself. Again, it helps to have people in your corner with experience. This is how we are made. We are made to learn from each other. He got the essay back, brought it home. He showed me our grade. We got an 80. (laughs) According to most grading scales... Uh, that's either a, a B- minus or a solid C+. Plus. Unbelievable. I, uh, I had some words that I wanted to share with the teacher after that, and let me tell you, I did not. <laughs> I just took the grade we were given and promised to never help my son again. 
In fact, Todd, after the first service, said, lesson learned, go to mom first, right? (laughs) As humbling of an experience that was, I still love content creation, and I love the art of assembling words in such a way that that not uh, not only gives them not just meaning, but purpose. I love how the strategic placement of one word can change the entire tone of of an entire sentence. A single word in a sentence can do the heavy lifting and tell you more than all the other words in the rest of the sentence combined. You may have noticed that our passage today starts with the word, therefore. Therefore. I may not be able to write a high school essay anymore, but I know that the word therefore is a conjunctive adverb. It's a word that signals a transition. Peter, the author of this letter, has made a point, and now he's forming a conclusion to his point. So before we go any further today, we need to be reminded, we need to remind ourselves where Peter started so we have a better grasp of what comes after therefore. So first of all, first of all, our passage comes from the Apostle Peter who's writing a letter to new Christians many of which are probably Jewish converts who have been scattered all across Asia Minor. And the reason they're scattered is because these young believers are encountering persecution as the Christian faith was under threat around the entire Greco-Roman world. So these Christians are suffering, profoundly so. And Peter has a message for them. Peter has a message for Christians who are in the midst of profound suffering. Maybe you can relate. So he opens his letter first reminding them of who they are, reminding of of, of their place in God's kingdom. This is what Dr. Lim talked to us about last week. If you believe in Jesus, then this, this is not your home. Your citizenship lies elsewhere. And he speaks to them of what awaits them. Verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what awaits you. This is what's been secured for you. This is the reminder he's detailing for them all before he gets to therefore. Now, I know many people tend to think of the Bible as a repository of commandments, a series of do this and don't do that right? Don't get me wrong, the Bible is replete with commandments, but these commands are always accompanied by reminders. We call this the indicative and the imperative. The imperative, the commands of the Bible, are always accompanied by indicatives or reminders of who God is and what He's done for us. And most importantly, these are reminders of whose power under which we carry out those commandments. Okay? For instance, I know you've heard of the Ten Commandments, and maybe some of you even have memorized the Ten Commandments. And what you'll remember is that the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, but please don't start there. That's the first commandment, but it's the third verse in the chapter. What immediately precedes this commandment and all the other commandments that come after it? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I did that for you. I did that. I fought for you, and I delivered you from your oppressor. I delivered you from evil. Now, in light of that, with that foundation, do this. Commandment number one. The imperatives are always accompanied by indicatives. Always. So Peter has a command. He's given us a command in the midst of suffering here. 
for Christians in the midst of suffering, but we can't forget what precedes the command. You're a chosen people. You are the Lord's. You've been redeemed, and nothing ever, 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 ever will change that. You belong to God. You're a citizen of heaven. If you believe in Jesus, those things are irrevocably true of you. Therefore, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. The phrase he's using there preparing your minds for actions. Other translations render that as gird the loins of your mind. There's a biblical phrase if I've ever heard one. Gird your loins, right? Gird your loins. But the author is painting a picture. Back during this time, the people, uh, the clothes that people wore didn't resemble what we wear today. Most often it was robes, long robes. And even the soldiers would wear such attire, but when it was time to go to battle, they would gird their loins, meaning they would pull up their garments past their knee and tie them off to allow them to, to move freely and swiftly so as to run to battle, to charge into battle. Gird yourselves. That's the imagery that Peter is invoking. Are you ready to go to battle? Here we go. I'm going to tell you how to go to battle against suffering and the oppression you're facing. Are you ready? So here's the command he gives them. This is the antidote for suffering. The Lord says, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. Well, that wasn't what I expected at all. I wonder how the response, how well this response was received. Hey, Peter, maybe you misunderstood. We're suffering here. People are being martyred. We're being driven from our homes. We're looking for something a little more concrete and practical. I was expecting to get a letter with a title along the lines of five ways to deal with difficult people. This can't be all you've got, Peter, is it? Be holy because God is holy? I don't know if anyone responded like that. But the reason I wonder that is why else would Peter tell them, gird yourselves? Gird yourselves here with minds that are alert and fully sober. In other words, this isn't easy, but it's all you've got. Be different. Be nonconformists. Be holy. What do you think of when I say the word holy? What, what comes to mind? If you and I were having a conversation and I asked you to tell me, what do you mean by holy? What does holy mean? What would you say? What does it mean to be holy? I think for a lot of us, more than a specific definition, it's certain imagery that comes to mind. Maybe you think of the church building. That, that seems like a holy thing. Maybe you think about a person in an ornamented robe with, a, with tall headgear and think, man, that, or how about this? Maybe do you look at each other? Do you ever look at each other and say, man, you are holy. That person is holy. You know, Todd, Todd Teller, he's a holy guy. You know, I've been going to church my whole life. And I seldom, I don't think I've ever recalled one time where I've heard someone of another person say, they're holy. They're a holy person. Yet here Peter is telling us, commanding us, be holy. Unless you think he's making up a new command here, he's only quoting what the Lord told Israel many centuries before. He repeated it a number of times all through the law. Be holy for I am holy. Be holy. So what is holiness? In the time we have left, that, that's what we want to answer. What is holiness and how do we get holiness? Just two points. What is holiness and how do we get holiness? What is holiness? Speaking of writing papers, uh, when I was in high school, I had an English teacher, and he had a peculiar way of grading. 
he was really vigilant about making sure we were really tight with our grammar. And he would give us three grades on our papers, a grade for content, a grade for form and structure, and then a grade for, for grammar. Okay, and he had a specific grading system for grammar, so it was five points off if you put a comma where a comma didn't belong. Another five points off if you left a comma off where there, where there should be a comma. And then another five points off for other grammatical errors like passive voice or unclear antecedent. It was brutal, okay? But here's the worst part of it. A few misplaced commas and you'd find your way to an F really quickly. So guess what? He'd keep going off the scale. So you get your paper back and say, okay, I got a B in content, a C in form, and a Q minus in grammar. <laughs> Fantastic. So you see, the fact that I got an 80 on my son's paper shows marked improvement, by the way. Okay? You did so poorly in grammar that it's beyond the scale. It's off the charts. You did so poorly there isn't a, trad a traditional measurement for, for the grade that you made. That's what his grade communicated to me, right? To understand holiness, you have to think beyond the scale, but in the other direction for God. Believe it or not, the word holy, as it's used in the Bible, comes from a word that means to cut and to separate, to cut loose. In other words, if you want to understand what it means that God is holy, you have to see him as infinitely above and beyond you and me. Here's you and me. He's cut away and completely separated from us. He exists outside the realm of how we might look and evaluate everyone else. You see, when you and I look at someone else, we judge them in just about any context you can think of. We judge them amongst ourselves and in reference to ourselves. If I think I'm a good person, it's because I'm comparing myself to someone else. And most often it centers around the idea that I am good because I've not done something as bad as my neighbor. Therefore, I am good. So perhaps unknowingly, we tend to judge God by the same criteria. We look at God and we want to think of Him as, as perhaps a little bit better than we are. When I'm in a bind and I just can't figure out what to do next, I want to go to someone who's a little better than me to give me that one little extra piece of information I need to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. I just need a wise sage who can, who can give me a little extra, the little extra that I'm lacking. No, it's not that God is a little better than we are. He's off the charts. Infinitely so. He's completely cut out of our categories in every way you can imagine, and then some. Are you familiar with the account of Job in the Bible? I would imagine that most of you know the basic premise in the opening chapter of the book of Job, we're introduced to, to Job himself, who the writer describes as a righteous man of great wealth. And as the account progresses, we learn that the Lord asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So a pretty good guy. Job is a good guy. And Satan answers the Lord in not so few words, saying, of course he loves you. Of course he loves you. Look what, look what you've done for him. You've put a hedge of protection around him. Look, look what you've done for him, how you've blessed him. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And then as the book of Job unfolds, we get a detailed account of all the suffering that Job endured and all the bad advice he got along the way from his wife and friends, telling him, among other things, 
obviously you've done something wrong, Job. Just admit it. Just admit it, and, and, and as well as things like, obviously you've done something wrong, Job. Uh, maybe just admit it and put an end to your, your misery, as well as curse God and die. Just curse God and die. Be done with it. Job refuses to capitulate. Amongst his responses to them was Job 19.25 and following. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. But along with that sentiment, Job also had some questions for God. Embedded in his speeches were questions along the lines of, what did I do to deserve this, God? Examine me. Tell me what I've done wrong. And at one point even emphatically says, let the Almighty answer me. Answer me, God. Why am I suffering? You see, the entire of Job, the entire story of Job is a whisper. It's a, it's a foretelling of Jesus thousands of years before Jesus. A righteous man whose privilege was set aside and replaced with suffering. The story of Job was a shadow Christ was the perfect image that cast that shadow. So Job, the shadow, wasn't a perfect representation of Jesus, but a reflection. In other words, Job, though described as righteous, wasn't perfect. Moreover, Job wasn't as blameless as he believed he was as he demanded answers from God. In Job 38... God answers him out of the whirlwind, and he begins with, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, or as it's rendered in other translations, gird your loins, Job. It's the same phrase that Peter uses in our passage. The Lord continues, I will question you, and you make known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Do you know Job? Now, I just read for you five verses of God's response to Job. It goes on like this for about 68 more verses before Job interacts with three verses of, okay, I'm just not going to talk, Lord. Uh, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth now, is what Job says. And then the Lord goes on for another 53 verses. Tell me, Job, what can you do? And where were you when, Job? Tell me, Job, do you know anything about any of this? Now, here's something really important that I don't want you to miss. Please understand this. I don't want you to get the impression that, that Job asks God, what have I done to deserve this? And then God decides to browbeat him for three chapters. Don't think of this as God saying, Job, how dare you question me? Who do you think you are? No, that's not what's happening here. The Lord is saying to him, Job, you think I'm here. You think you can compare me to you, but no, I'm, I'm off the scale. I'm cut away and separated. I'm not even on the scale, Job. I am holy. In other words, Job is asking God, why are you letting me suffer? And the Lord responds by exposing Job to the holy nature of God. 
Job suffers and God shows him holiness because when God reveals his holiness to us, we are changed. This is how Isaiah describes it in, in chapter 55 of Isaiah 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So when God reveals himself to Job, it's as if he's peeling back the curtain just ever so slightly to give him a glimpse of his wisdom, his power, his knowledge, his goodness, his infinitude. And seeing just a glimpse of this changes Job. Job was different after this point. It's okay to ask God why. It's okay to, God, to tell God, I'm hurting. But what we're reading in, in 1 Peter and in Job and Isaiah is the first step to finding consolation in suffering. It's to realize that God is holy. And through hurt, through suffering, through struggle, God shows himself to you to change you, to make you more like him. You can't separate the Christian life from suffering. Can't do it. Because it's the means he uses to make you holy. To make you like Jesus, who brought about new life through suffering. We, we never wish suffering upon anyone. I would never ask the Lord to suffer. But because his ways are higher than mine, he uses it to shape me in the mold of his son. Outside of the scope of what I think is the best way to grow. Last summer, my, my family and I, we visited the, the Grand Canyon, and it was the first time I'd ever been there. And when I, when they say that, that pictures don't do it justice, it is absolutely true. When you first lay eyes on it, for the first time in my life, I literally didn't believe my eyes. My first thought was, it doesn't look real. That was my first thought. What a preposterous thought. I've never seen a more complete image of the Grand Canyon than when I stood at its edge and looked at it with my own eyes. And when I see it, my thought was, it doesn't look real. It doesn't look real because I've seen images. I've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, some of them in high definition, right? And yet my first thought was, it doesn't look real because it doesn't match the image I created in my own mind for what it would be like when I first saw it doesn't match the image that I created. We try to understand God, and we try and wrap our minds around His ways, and it's not like looking at a picture. It's like looking at a, a picture through a pinhole and thinking we have grasp of, of the entirety of it. So, so here's the payoff. And again, I know this isn't easy, but this is the biblical consensus. This is how you deal with suffering. Step one, you have to lay aside your perception of who God is and realize that if God is really who he says he is, that if he's really holy, that means at some point we have to put our hand over our mouth and stop comparing him to our expectation of who we think he is and start receiving who he is. Start receiving what he is and what he's done. And the biggest surprise of all, yes, as you discover that he is the judge, as we're told in verse 17, he is the judge who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. But in that same verse, Peter tells us we discover he is our father. We, we call on him as father. This means that his purpose behind bringing you to a place where we, we put our hand over our mouth isn't to shame us. 
It's to love us. Understand who I am. Understand my holiness because it will change you. Now, the last point, if we understand first that He is holy and we have a better understanding of what His holiness is, Peter is telling us that the Lord is telling us, be holy, be holy. So how do we do that? How do we do that? First and foremost, remember where we started. You carry out the commands of God, the commands of the Bible, you carry them out under His power. He's given you what you need to carry out what He asks of you. But you also need to understand this. When God saves you, when He calls you from darkness to light, He does not fail. This is what Peter is laboring to tell us before, therefore. When He sets His sights on you to save you, He will do it. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. If you believe in the saving work of Jesus on your behalf then you are saved and there's nothing that can change that. You've been justified and adopted. That's 100% His work, and because it's His work, He will not fail. So in that respect, you are already holy. You already have been cut away and separated for His use. However, the work of sanctification. Sanctification is a word in the Bible that has the same root word as the word holy. But when the Bible speaks of sanctification, it's referring to the ongoing process of being made holy. So yes, you're already holy, but you're also being made holy. The, the ongoing process of, of being made holy begins the moment that He saves you, and it continues for the rest of your life. And it's in that process whereby He calls us to action. He calls us to participate in the process. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you always have obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation for, with fear and trembling. So it's all on me? I work out my own salvation on my own? No, the next verse says, For it is God who works in you. He gives you what you need to do this, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the Father brings you in on the process, not because He needs you to. He's inviting you in. He's saying, participate with me here. And you work synergistically with the Father to grow in holiness. In other words, there is action you've been called to take to grow in holiness, to be like Him. Verse 22 of our Scripture passage today, we're told, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. There it is. Did you hear it? Our souls are purified. We are made holy through obedience. What Peter is saying here is obedience yields holiness. And holiness yields obedience. They go hand in hand. The more obedient you are, the more you grow in holiness. The more you grow in holiness, the, the more obedient you become. Do you know that the Greek word for obey is built on the same root as the Greek word for listen? But obey is written as hyperlisten, hyperlistening. So do you see what this means? To obey is not just a matter of listening, but hyperlistening. In other words, not just taking sound in as a function of biology, but God wants people to take what they hear and plant it in their souls to the point that you must take action. What action? What action are we supposed to take? Okay, I'm going to give you some really practical ways to do this. All right? And I, and I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you in at least one of these ways that I'm going to mention, which, which are areas that, that might be in need of, of hyper-listening. 
Each one of us is different, okay? But maybe there's one thing in here that we each need to hyper-listen to. Not just understanding that these are good things and, and, and we need to do them, but they, but they also require action. Okay, so last weekend I ran the, the Music City Half Marathon for the seventh time, and, and to tell you the truth, every time I run that race, it's right around mile 10 where I say, I hate this and I'm never doing it again. <laughs> hate it. In fact, the, the week before the race, I was teaching, uh, I was, I was uh, subbing for Dr. Lim's class and uh, talking about Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, and the imagery that the author of Hebrews paints is likened to a race. And in that race, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the saints of heaven who cheer us on as they marvel at the glory of God manifesting itself in the lives of his children. They encircle us from the arena of heaven and they cheer. God is great. God is glorious. And this time, as I neared the finish line, I'm completely spent. And and, and you continue down this corridor of people cheering you on as you near the finish line. People you don't even know cheering for you're almost there. Press on, you're almost at the finish line. Come on, you can do it. And perhaps it was because I just taught on this from Hebrews, the thought went through my mind, okay, this is what it feels like to die. (laughs) A cloud of witnesses cheering you on as I near the end of my race. Death must feel just like this. Now, I know there's some of you that have been running marathons for, for years, and it comes easy to you, but for most of us, it's not easy. And growing in holiness, growing in spiritual disciplines, for most of us, is not easy. Again, this is why Peter is telling us, gird yourselves, because it requires something of you. Several years ago, when I decided for the first time to run one of these races, I was given a plan which was described along the lines of a schedule to take you from the couch to a half marathon. In other words, even if you're not doing anything now, follow this plan, and at the end of it, you'll be running a half marathon, which, by the way, that's a little discouraging in and of itself. You train for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and, and you've spent hours you know, running. You, you gear up to run 13.1 miles. You run the race, and congratulations, you did half. <laughs> I, I think they should call it the race and the really long race. That feels a little bit more my speed, I think. But basically, the plan says, start here, mile one. Start with the first mile. Start by working your way to one mile. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it's the thing that establishes the pattern of discipline. So here are my challenges. Where do you think you can stretch yourself getting to mile one? It doesn't seem like a lot, again, but it's the thing that's going to get you going. And maybe it's for you, it's from going from mile five to mile six. Where are the areas that we can engage here in hyper-listening? Where can we hyper-listen here? If you want to grow in holiness, the only way to do that is to be exposed to his character, just like Job. Job was changed. God revealed his character, his wisdom, his power to Job, and Job was different. Where do we discover God's character? His word. And and that probably doesn't come as a surprise to, to a lot of you but you got to do it. If you don't already, can you, can you carve out 20 minutes a day? Do you know that if you carve out about 20 minutes a day, you can, you can read your Bible through the whole Bible. You can read through the whole Bible in about 20 minutes a day in about a year. Carving out 20 minutes a day, maybe that could be your first mile. And again, when you get through the year, do it again. And then do it again. And then do it again after that. Over and over and over the course of the whole race, you will be changed. You'll be different. 
Maybe, number two, you can stretch yourself out in how you pray. I know for many of us, we think about prayer as an ongoing, anytime we need it kind of a thing. We offer up a prayer to God, and I think that's a, a great practice. Pray without ceasing, but don't stop there. Don't leave it at just that. What's your first mile? Can you start with, with 10 minutes a day, 10 focused minutes a day where you, where you stop? You consider who he is. You, you revel in who he is. Confess to him where, where you've come up short and thank him for, for who he is and for what he's done. Stop what you're doing and take time to be grateful. Enumerate your blessings. Maybe that's your first mile. And three, where else can you draw near to God's character? Right here. Right here. I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're here today. This is your first mile. You did it. What's your next mile? We stated as part of our CPC 101 training here, and it's part of our discipleship pathway. Be here every Sunday. Every Sunday. Every Sunday. And if you're out of town, go be with a part of, of Christ's body in that town. Because did you hear that? It's the body of Christ. How do you lean into God's character? character? You, you'll find it being with Christ's body. Let me tell you something. This city and this community has, has been through a difficult season. I know you know this. But do you know what has encouraged me over the last several weeks? Do you know, do you know what has, has given me life? Seeing a community of believers in the face of tragedy, in the face of suffering, hold each other up. Over the last several weeks, I've felt tired physically, mentally, and spiritually, but I've not felt depleted. You know why? Because of the body of Christ. Seeing the body of Christ hold one another up has held me up. Peter tells us in our passage, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. I saw that. I've seen that. I've witnessed it here over the last five, five, six weeks. Come be a part of it. Organize your week around it. Let coming to this place be your singular priority that everything else revolves around. And, and why do I tell you to do these things? Not so you can check them off, not so you can say them, not because oh, suddenly God's going to be more proud of you because you've done these things, but because it changes you. It changes you. Doing these things makes you different. Doing these things pulls you closer to the character of God. And in so doing, it changes how you receive suffering and trials, difficulty, in hardship, it reorients you and sets you apart. There's one more place. There's one more place where you can pull yourself closer to the character of God, and that's right here at these tables. These tables right here. This, too, is the Word. This is the Word in pictures. It's the tactile reminder that, that, that the God who is holy, holy, holy is also your father. And he surrendered his only son to draw you near through suffering, to pull you close to his character, to tell you, I'm your father and I love you. And because of this, you too can be holy. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you gave us your son who, who brought us out of darkness 
and brought us into light. Thank you for, for cutting us free and setting us aside for your purpose. Help us, help us, we pray, until you come again. Help us to continue the work of pursuing holiness and help us to walk in the footsteps of your Son. Help us to choose this daily. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.